Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and I am so grateful that you are here this morning. Uh, whether it's your first time or whether you've been here many times, I want you to know that you are welcome here, and I am grateful that you are here. Now, throughout my life, I've been incredibly fortunate to have men in my life who have taught me through their actions uh, that Christian men should look different. One of those men was my grandfather on my mom's side. And when I was growing up, I used to love and go and spend time in the summers with my grandparents. And one thing I observed during these summers that I spent with my grandparents is that my grandfather knew his neighbors. Not just in a way that he knew their names, but he knew their struggles. He knew that the lady two streets over had just lost her husband. And he knew that the lady four houses down had a hard time getting around. And he checked on them to make sure that they were doing all right and to see if they needed anything. My grandfather knew his neighbors. And I learned a lot about compassion from my grandfather. Not by what he said, but by what he did and what he modeled when I was with him. So I learned the value of caring well for others and helping others without expecting anything in return because he took me with him while he was doing these things. I was also and still am blessed to have a father who loves the Lord and has always had a strong work ethic. And when I was younger, before my dad went into full-time ministry, my dad worked all day long at Firestone Tires. And then he went after work for his second job to spray with the pest control company. And then on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, he led the music and the youth at a local church. See, my dad modeled and taught my brother and I that what a hard work ethic looked like. And sometimes he told us verbally, demanding that we take pride in our work, even if it was raking up the pine straw, something that I hated as a child. But I also saw my father model this. See, both of these men look different in their actions from the world around them caring well for others and working hard and not expecting anything to be handed to them because of their actions. They looked differently how they handled themselves with self-control and how they were a model of good works. Today in the book of Titus, we're going to see that God has also provided instructions for how believers of Jesus Christ should look differently and teach the younger generation around them to look differently than the world around them. Now, we're currently in the middle of a series walking through the book of Titus and looking at God's blueprint for a healthy church. And we've discovered that this book was written by Paul, who was writing to Titus, who was on the island of Crete. And he had gone with Paul there, and there were many house churches who were filled with really unhealthy things and filled in dysfunction. And so Paul had left Titus there to help these really unhealthy churches become healthy churches. And then we discovered the first truth that we saw through our text looking at the Bible of a blueprint for a healthy church is that the first blueprint of a healthy church is that they, their identity is secure in God. And last week we saw that the second blueprint of a healthy church is that they have healthy leadership. Today we're going to continue discovering God's intent for how the church is to teach one another to follow him and with the next generation. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the small book of Titus. If you didn't bring a Bible today, that is okay. Um, we have one in the seat in front of you that you can use, and you can find our passage today on page 938. So right now, let's read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It says this, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you... 
Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure and working at home and kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The last week, when we looked in chapter 1, verses one th- verses. Uh, 5 through 16, we saw Paul told Titus, hey, these churches are really unhealthy uh, with unhealthy leaders. So you need to set healthy leaders over the church from within so they can silence those who are seeking to lead people away from the church to have qualified men to be called to not only the ministry of comfort, but also to the ministry of confrontation. And Paul continues in chapter 2 today saying, but as for you. And this contrasts what we just previously read in verses 10 through 16. See, Paul is instructing Titus, not just to the elders, but he's instructing Titus to the work he is to do is to charge all in the Cretan church. So everyone in the Cretan church to teach what accords to sound doctrine. Well, what is sound doctrine? Well, we can simply understand that as having healthy beliefs, beliefs that are healthy in the church. So the contrast here is those in the church of Crete, they've been exposed to or taught what is unhealthy. And Titus is calling them to teach what is healthy for believers to believe. He's literally calling them to be a healthy church. Uh, We saw the word teach used in chapter 1, verse 9 in the context of elder or pastor, but the word for teach here is different. Rather than teaching and preaching like I'm doing right now and like a pastor does, Titus is to instruct different groups within the church to speak in ordinary, everyday conversations about teaching others how to walk with the Lord and how to look differently as they're going about their everyday lives. Well, who was Titus to instruct this to? Well, Paul gives five groups that Titus is to instruct. And the first group that we see is older men. So let's look at the expectations for older men that Titus is communicating here in verse 2. He says this, Older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. So Titus' first concern is with the old men, and he basically gives two exhortations that can be summarized as dignity and maturity. Uh, One commentator uh, referred to these as the graybeards of the flock. Uh, Now, I don't see many graybeards today other than Brother Tony over here, uh, but maybe you get the context of what he's talking about, the graybeards. So what are the graybeards to do? Well, first, they are to be sober-minded. 
to be clear-headed, to be men who exhibit unclouded thinking that produces a life of self-restraint, restraining from addictions or greed. And as men that are older, they see which things are of the greatest value and importance. So rather than when they used to be younger, now with their time and money and energy, they think more carefully than when they were younger and now that they have more maturity. Older men are also called to be dignified. Well, does this mean that older men are always to wear bow ties and tuxes? Well, absolutely not. Uh, We can understand this phrase to mean worthy of respect. It's dignity in their behavior, not behaving frivolous or silly, or even more directly, not laughing at what is immoral or participating in what is sinful or ungodly. And older men, we also see, are to be self-controlled. We see this characteristic in all of the five groups that Paul lists here. So we can understand that self-control is an essential characteristic for a believer of Jesus Christ, that believers be able to control themselves. And since it's listed for every group, we can also understand that Paul's telling Titus here that self-control is needed and it is attainable by all Christians. It should be a characteristic that marks us as different among non-believers. We should look different in the fact that we have self-control. Finally, Titus is to instruct the older men in the church to be sound or healthy in their faith and in their love and in their endurance. I think it's telling here uh, that Paul substitutes his usual triad of faith, hope, and love with endurance for hope here. Think about that. Uh, Later in life, the temptation is to not endure But our hope that we have in heaven allows us to endure and to persevere in our faith and our love here on earth. So rather than later in life relaxing our morals, Titus is instructing the older men of the church to continue to fight the good fight, to continue to be steadfast, to finish the race well, and don't slow down just because you're at the finish line, right? Uh, Titus, my son, not Titus the book, uh, recently ran track at his school in cross country. And it was, a, it was a humorous thing. So you see the kids and they're supposed to run four laps in the track. And they run as fast as they can on the first track, uh, first lap. And then the second lap, they're still pushing pretty hard. But then they get to the third lap and what are they doing? They're like walking, like slowing down. Like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to this fourth lap, right? Well, it's almost as if Titus right here, Titus the book, is to be a junior high track coach. And when the kids are on the third lap and they all start slowing down and some start walking and then they get so tired that they're careless where their steps are, Titus is to tell the older men, hey, keep on keeping on. You've got this. You're almost there. You're on the third lap and you may be on the fourth lap, but you're almost there. Don't slow down and watch your steps. Make sure your steps are Uh, You're paying attention to them. It's older men here today, Mission Dorado, those who are among us, those whose kids are older or your kids have already left the house. Hey, just like this text says, you keep on keeping on. Keep on fighting the good fight. Be men who are characterized by modeling dignity and maturity. Heaven is coming and we need you to model for us all what it looks like to be different than the world around us. So fight the good fight and let's run hard toward the finish line and let's finish the race well. The next group that Titus is to address is 
uh, older women. Uh, look at the expectations for that in verses 3 through the beginning of 4. It says this, But we ourselves... Or, nope, that's chapter 3. We're going to look at chapter 2 today. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. So Titus's concern here is the older women in the church. Well, how do you define an older woman, woman in the church? Well, I'm smart enough to know that I don't need to do that. <laughs> I don't need to define that. However, what we can understand that Titus is saying here, he's probably instructing women whose children, if they had any, would have been the age that they're raised and they're leaving the home. So as children grow up and they leave the home, then in this culture, in this Christian culture, the older women's focus may have become less defined and they may have been searching for a purpose. So Paul tells Titus here to instruct the older women, hey, you have a purpose. First, your behavior should be appropriate. You should be self-controlled and reverent. And reverence doesn't mean that you can't always laugh or be quiet, but reverence means that you're not slanderers, that you don't speak in a way that defames or spreads what is false about others. Second, we can understand that reverent means that you're not enslaved by alcohol, that you're not a slave to the spirits, but you're enslaved to the Holy Spirit, right? So older women are to be reverent and not slanderers and not enslaved by alcohol, but rather they are to teach what is good. See, older women have a purpose even after having raised their kids in this Christian culture. They are to teach what is good. Well, who are they to teach? Well, no doubt they teach their family and they teach their children and they teach their grandchildren. But also and more specifically, they are to train young women. See, it's the older women who are to train up the younger women within the church how to do what is good. Well, how are the older women to do this and what are they to be teaching? We'll look at verses 4 through 5 and let's see what it says. It says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the first observation that we can notice here and the expectation for younger women is they are expected to be trained by the older women in the church. So this expectation and this instruction from Titus goes two ways. So older women are expected to train the younger women, and younger women are expected to receive the training from the older women in the church. Well, what are they to be trained in? Well, the first thing that we see here is they are to be trained in how to love, specifically the love for their husbands and their children, now, I recognize that there's a cultural shift from the island of Crete and in West Odessa today, uh, from culture to culture, and not all young women in our culture are married and have children today. But what we can understand that is to be taught here is how to love. So being taught by older women that love is not an emotion. Love is not an attraction, but rather love is an action of sacrifice and service. I mean, how much do we all need to be taught that in our culture today? Love is not selfish. I think we see that somewhere else in the Bible, right? Young women should be urged and taught by older women in the church how to continue in the action of love when the emotion is sometimes not there. And let's just be honest. Marriage is hard. 
And raising kids is hard. And this is not a wimpy work. Can I get an amen? Right? Oftentimes at the end of the day, the only action that you have is just pushing through because you love your husband or your children or because you have love in your hearts. Paul's point is that older women should be doing what he's just told the older men. The older women are to tell the younger ladies of the church, hey, keep on keeping on. Today may not have been great, but keep going. Love is hard. It's an action. It's a commitment. It's a sacrifice. And we can only understand it because we have experienced it through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Further, the older women are to teach the younger women While you are keeping on, keeping on, be self-controlled. Control yourself and stay pure while you are working at home. Now, while our culture is different from the Christian culture, we can all recognize that. We should not understand this to say or be a mandate that all women should be stay-at-home wives. In our culture, that would be impossible. It takes two incomes in the Permian Basin just to be able to make the ends meet, right? Uh, Rather, we should understand this to say, if a young woman has a husband and a job, that she will love them and not neglect them, and that she should be busy in her home, loving her family well. Paul is saying, hey, older women should teach younger women, be self-controlled, be busy. I mean, that's good advice for all of us, right? And husbands, I'm just going to offer up this free advice for you, free of charge. Uh, You don't even have to pay me for this. We can do laundry too, right? (laughs) Husbands, if you got a kid at the house, you can change a diaper too, right? This is advice for young ladies, but it's also good advice for us all. But more specifically, what Paul is getting at here is what should not be occurring. And what should not be occurring is what we see in 1 Timothy 5.13, that young women should not be in the habit of being idle and going from house to house and saying what they ought not to say. But rather, young women should be taught by the older women to be busy, to be kind, and to be submissive to their own husbands. We saw a similar language to this in 1 Peter 3, 1, when I preached through 1 Peter earlier this year. And remember what I said there. I said, notice the word own here. It's very huge. Who is the wife to be submissive to? Well, to her own husband. And this means that females are not to be subject to every male, Not to every man, but rather to their own husbands. Also, when we see this phrase to be subject to or to be submissive here, it's not with the intent of absolute obedience, but rather it's understood as godly order in a chain of command. And this idea of being subject is the acceptance of a relationship in which God has placed us in, in which there's order in, in which the husband is the head of. Not one as absolute authority, especially if he knows what is good for him, but as of one of responsibility and one of loving care. Also, it's important to note uh, that to be subject to does not mean that one gender is greater than the other. We should always be mindful of what Paul said in Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there is neither male nor female. In Christ we are all sinners who have been redeemed. See, Jesus saw equality in males and females. He sat down with the woman at the well, and women were the first to find the empty tomb. But he also saw order and roles in the gender. See, the equality of genders does not negate the fact that there are distinctive roles for each gender. 
that there are gender assignments that God has created males and females distinctively for. In other words, God made us male and female, not because one is better than the other, but because God has a specific purpose for each of our lives. And our unique purposes work together to form and to benefit one another. So in the context of the home, wives are to be subject to their own husbands, and their husband is to have the weight and the responsibility of leading and loving in the home. And Paul gives a lot of attention here to young women to be trained in these ways. Well, why? Well, Paul gives us here in verse 5 one of the the first of three so that phrases that we see in this passage. He says, so that no one will blaspheme God's word. See, Paul's concern here is that the young women who follow Jesus Christ will look differently than the other young women of Crete. Now, Paul's point is that women should look different so, men won't, or so people won't say, well, if that's what a Christian woman looks like, then I won't know part in that. Women, I want you to know, of Mission Drive, I want you to know I am thankful for you. Uh, whether you are a widow or a grandmother or an empty nester, or someone who's never had children, or a young mom, or a young lady, or a girl who's not married, or if I miss anything, I'm thankful for you. I didn't grow up with sisters, but now I have three ladies in my house with my wife and two daughters, and I still feel ill-equipped to say this, but I recognize that my struggles are not your struggles, right? Paul's point here, and my point is, hey, don't try to do it alone. We've been given this amazing gift of community called the church. Older women, you have a purpose. You have a calling, and it is to train up the younger women of the church to look different than the women in the world around them. And young ladies, you have a responsibility, and that is to receive instruction and teaching from the older ladies in the church. Older ladies in the church, maybe you feel like you're at the end of your race, or maybe you feel like you're done with the purposes that have been assigned to you. And I hate to break it to you, but according to this passage, you're not done. See, within the Christian life, there's no such thing as being done until you cross the finish line. So let me implore you, older ladies, don't you dare tell God or yourself that you're done. There are younger ladies that need you. There are younger ladies that need your encouragement and they need your stories and they need your wisdom and they need to see that you've made it to the other side. So God has not given you the victories and the wisdom and the maturity to take them to the grave with you. No, he has given them to you to intentionally pour into the next generation to teach and train the young women of the church. You may not even know what to do, but you can listen, right? You can call up a young mama or a lady and say, hey, why don't you tell me what you're struggling with or how I can pray for you? And that's huge. We had at our church yesterday, we had a cookie swap. I mean, that's huge. Just ladies of all different generations getting together and being able to talk and share their struggles. I mean, that is what the church should look like. On the reverse, younger women, you have a responsibility to receive instruction and teaching from the older ladies of the church. I mean, why would we run to Instagram or to self-help book of a person that will never meet and forsake the wisdom of the ladies that God has placed in the very room that we sit in. So maybe today, young lady, you feel alone or you feel like there's no one that cares and no one that knows the stress of what you're going through. But look around. The ladies in this room, they didn't get the wrinkles and the gray hair because they haven't been through anything. And I'm saying that as a compliment. Many of them have gone through what you have gone through and seek them out 
and call on them. Buy them lunch or coffee. And if you're broke, make them pay for it. (laughs) But don't go at it alone. Women of Mission Dorado, I am so thankful for you. And as your pastor, I recognize that your struggles are not my struggles. And to be honest, I'm ill-equipped to shepherd you in many of your struggles. But don't fear. You're not alone. Look around. God has given us this amazing community called the church with many women who can come alongside you and mentor you and pour into you and walk alongside with you. So don't waste the gift that we have in one another. Paul now turns his attention to the young men as the next group for Titus to address. Look at verses 6 through 8. It says this, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So the word likewise that begins our text here links the thought of self-control, but I would argue that it also links Titus urging the older men to teach the younger men to be self-controlled. We can clearly see that link in verse 7, but I would argue it starts all the way back in verse 6. So I would say this first expectation that we can see for younger men here that's unspoken but implied is that younger men are to be trained and taught by older men. Well, what are the older men to teach the younger men to do? Well, first, to be self-controlled. We see this for every group that Paul mentions here. And the norm in our society is what? Men who are not expected to have self-control. But Christian men, hear me. You can and you should be self-controlled. Further, older men should model and teach to the younger men by being examples of integrity. That's greatly needed in today by being men of dignity who teach them to be worthy of respect and not in behaving in ungodly ways, to be men who have sound speech. And they teach the younger men to have speech that is healthy and it's wholesome and it's true. The great theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said, men whom God uses the most are the men who have the most fear of God in them. What older men should be modeling and what we need you to model and teach us as younger men is that we should have a healthy fear of the Lord in us. A respect for the Lord that we understand the depth of His wrath and we understand the depth of our sins and we recognize the depth of His forgiveness. Why? It says, so that no one has anything bad to say about us. This almost mirrors what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, So that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. See, older men should train the younger men to walk in a way so that no one has anything bad to say about those who follow Christ. And this is a strong expectation. So young men of Mission Dorado, I'm speaking to you as one who is you and is quickly not becoming one of you. Uh, As you can notice with my losing of my hair that my daughter loves to point out to me. What our world needs, what our world needs and what our wives and our children deserve, what our future wives deserve are men who fear the Lord. So men, fear the Lord and control yourselves. Fear the Lord and control yourselves in your speech. Control yourselves in your emotions. Control yourselves in your anger and in how you treat others. And this is hard. 
But so is anything else worth doing in life. It takes awareness and it takes practice. And you're going to miss up. Hear me, what our, our future wives and what our society and what our future children deserve and what they expect is not perfection. They just expect us to fear the Lord and to chase after Him, right? Paul has just listed these expectations for young women. So men, if you're married in here or if you plan on being married, hear me say this, be a man who it is easy for your wife to submit to, to be subject to. Well, what does that mean? That means you get up in the morning early and you go to work and you work hard. And that means when you get home and you're dog tired, you come in and after you've worked hard at work, then you work hard at home. You come in and you change the diapers and you help with the laundry and you get the kids in the bed. And then you ask how your wife's day is and you listen and try not to fall asleep. But you're a man that fears the Lord and you love your wife and your children as an action. And you take seriously the weight of responsibility of leading and loving the home. And I'm just going to tell you, this is hard. And you're not going to do it perfectly. But this is, our culture doesn't expect this. And our culture doesn't recognize this. But this is what we are called to as Christian men. And just like with the ladies, we can't do it on our own. God has given us the good gift of the church. And we may not want or need to talk to anybody about it, men. But here's what I see from looking in this room today. I see man after man after man who has gray hair or no hair, right? And they've done it. They've loved their families well. They fought the good fight and they're still fighting the good fight. And they have modeled that it is possible to you and I. So we fight the good fight. And we model and show those who are younger than us that it is possible to love your kids and wife well. It is possible to work hard. It is possible to fear the Lord. It is possible to be a man who walks in integrity and dignity and having sound speech. It is possible to apologize. Men, be okay with apologizing when you fall short. But then get right back up and keep on getting after it. So older men, be an example for us younger men. And younger men... Look to the older men who have done it before and let's keep on keeping on being self-controlled, fearing the Lord and leading well. Why? So that our culture can see it is possible and they can see that Jesus causes Christian men to look and to act differently. When there's a fear of God in us, it causes us to look differently. Paul's final instruction is the expectations for those who were slaves. Look at verses 9 through 10 right here today. This is bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I do want to preface this before we talk about Titus' instructions he is to give to slaves. First and foremost, slavery was and is wrong. Slavery in all forms is wrong. It's also important to notate that Paul is not condoning or supporting this practice, yet he's offering instruction for how Christians who are caught in this sinful reality are to behave. That being said, Paul tells Titus to instruct slaves to be subject, to recognize the hierarchy that they find themselves in, and to be under the authority of those who are their masters. Paul's not saying this is right. 
In fact, Paul's overarching mentality is that the only way that the reality of slavery could change is through over time, through a heart change occurring in the masters through Christ. So he's arguing that slaves should do nothing to make Christ unappealing to their masters. Therefore, they are to be submissive. They're to be well-pleasing, to have an attitude of submission and be well-pleasing with their attitudes, to not be argumentative, to not steal or plunder from those who are their masters. Rather, Paul says through it all to show good faith that they can be trusted. Why? We see our third and final so that phrase here. This behavior is to be done so that in every way they make the teaching of Jesus Christ attractive. I mean, how easy would it have been for a non-submissive, bad attitude, argumentative, and stealing slave to make the teaching of Jesus Christ unappealing? So Paul's not arguing here for Christians to... So Paul is arguing here for Christians to look different no matter how awful the situations or the sins they find themselves in. And this is a radical faith. It allows you, even in the most challenging and sinful situations, to have actions that look different for the sake that some might believe in Jesus and repent and follow him. I mean, could you imagine the heart change of a slave owner when they see the change that the gospel has made in their slaves? They may even get saved and see that slavery is a sin. That's the hope that Paul is hoping for here. So Paul is making a case here that we only see our present situations as temporary so that our difference makes others salivate for the goodness of the gospel. So Paul, through these first 10 verses, he's offered ways that five different groups should look different in their behavior as believers so that non-believers might become believers in Jesus Christ. So having seen what God's Word says and what it means, and we've already done a little application, I wonder how we might apply God's Word to our lives today. First is this. Today in our society, we find ourselves in an alarming reality. In our culture, I talked about this last week, more churches are closing their doors and will close their doors in the next decade than at any other time in our country's history. We're already beginning to see it in the rural towns where the reality was dotted throughout the landscape of every small town was a First Baptist church. And these historical churches are now all over our country filled with 10 or 15 people, and then they're closing their doors at an alarming rate, not able to pay for their building repairs, utilities, and with no pastors wanting to go and to shepherd these small town churches. At the same time, we also find ourselves in a culture with the reality that Christianity is at a rapid decline with no signs of slowing down. And then I think linked with the decline of churches and the decline of Christianity, we also in our culture find a reality that there's a rise in hatred and there's a rise in unkindness and there's a rise in evil in our world. So what can be done? Well, the reality is this. You and I cannot change the cultural realities for everyone. We can't fix everything. We can't fix every single situation. We can cry out to God to do that, but we can't fix every situation. But what we can do and what we've been told to do in our text today is to change the course right here and right now in East Odessa at Mission Dorado with the younger generation that we have been entrusted to. So you and I, we can't change the headlines on the news, but we can change someone's reality that's right here in our midst Think back to the illustration I shared at the beginning. I'm sure when my grandfather took, with, took me with him to change a light bulb, 
of a widow at 8 p.m. in 1994. He wasn't looking to directly impact my future, but it did. I'm sure when my dad made me rake up pine straw over and over for the third time because I was trying to get away with doing a sloppy job and wasn't focused, he wasn't focused on impacting my work ethic forever, but he did. See, hear me. We can't change everyone, but each of us can impact someone. We can all be a part of producing the next generation to glorify God. So my question for you today is this. Who are you intentionally pouring into to produce for the church of tomorrow? We can't change every reality, but we can work right here at Mission Dorado and right now teaching younger women and younger men what it looks like to be self-controlled and to fear and love God for the future of Mission Dorado and for the next generation to glorify God. We must be about generational discipleship. We must be being poured into by someone who is older than us and pouring into someone who is younger than us. Another question I have is, how are we preparing for the church of tomorrow? How are we preparing Mission Dorado to be the church of the next generation? Mission Dorado has been around for a few generations now, and it looks different than when it began. And it looks different than when I arrived four years ago. And church as a whole looks very different for me than it did when I was a child. But the purposes are still being accomplished. We're still growing in our faith. We're still operating in unity. We're still loving one another. We're still worshiping uh, Jesus Christ, and we're caring well for one another, and we're glorifying God. And at Mission Dorado, I can honestly say that our children are being challenged to do the same, to grow in their faith in the Lord. But what will Mission Dorado look like for our children's children? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. I pray to God, and I pray that you would join me in praying this, that it would not look like the reality of the FBCs that are dotted all over rural America that are closing their doors. See, today is this. We can't, the truth is this. We can't change everyone, but each of us can impact someone. And the truth we see today is we can all be a part of producing the next generation to glorify God. My final observation is this. We saw through our text today, over and over, that believers should have self-control, that they should look different as believers than the world around them. Three times, Paul said the reason that they should look different is so that others might believe in Jesus Christ. Christian, today you should look different. Not because your work saved you, but because Jesus Christ has saved you from the inside out. See, our lives should proclaim the reality of the gospel. It should proclaim the reality of what we know that God is holy, that He's perfect. He's never done anything wrong, but yet all of us are sinners. We've all done something wrong that falls short of the glory of God, and this creates a problem because it has separated us from a good God who loves us and created us. But then we also know this truth and this good news that God loves us so much that He sent a rescuer, He sent help, and His name is Jesus Christ. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth as a baby and was fully God and fully man. He lived a fully perfect, sinless life here on earth, but yet he went to a cross and he died for your sins and he died for my sins. Three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. So that today, we can look different because we have a different hope, because we have a living hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. We have a rescuer. We can be forgiven and joined back in a relationship with God. 
So Christian, we should look different today because our lives say we don't have it all figured out, nor do we have to have it all figured out because we have a Savior who has it all figured out and we can rest in Him. So today, believer, I would just encourage you, look at your life. Our works don't save us, but does your life look differently than the non-believers that you know? Our lives should look different than those who don't follow Jesus Christ. We should be becoming more like Jesus today than we were yesterday and growing and being self-controlled. So I would also urge you, hey, don't go with this alone. We've been given this good gift of older men and older women in the church, and we can come together to encourage one another, to offer wisdom from one another, and to help each other fight our sin together. So that was the point so that we can glorify God and that others might see us and believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you recognize that you are different than the people in this room and their lives look differently than you. And you know that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today, in just a few moments, as I pray and we sing, I would invite you to come down front and I can tell you how good Jesus is and I can tell you how to let him become the savior of your life, that you believe in him, you repent of your sins and you follow him. So Christian, the truth that we see today is this. We should look different as believers so that others might believe in Jesus Christ. Our big idea for today is this. Jesus Christ causes his followers to look different than the world around them in their actions and in their relationships. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer in here today, today I just want to remind you once again, you're not alone. We have the good gift of the church. We have men and women who can come alongside you. I also want to encourage us all. Who are the men and women who will teach what is good to those who are younger? Where are they? Are you one of them and will you be one of them? Who will produce the next generation? It can't just be some of us, but it must be us all. So today, don't dare say that you're retired from the business of producing the next generation. And today, don't you dare say you're not ready or you're not old enough to produce the next generation. The responsibility is for us all to continually help the next generation walk with the Lord. Who then can help the next generation and the next generation? Our lives are meant for more than ourselves. They're meant to help others walk in the Lord. So use your wisdom, use your experiences to pour into others. Also, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, hear me, you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You can just come forward and he will accept you as you are and he will save you. When I pray and we sing in a few moments, the altar is open. Whatever it is that you need to do in this moment, let's do it. Maybe you're here today and you just feel like you're drowning and you need someone. Go find someone. If you can't find someone, you come see me. You come see Mario or Misty and we will get you paired up with someone. Maybe today you, you want to pour into someone. Go find a younger lady or a younger, a younger man and you pour into them. But whatever it is, let's not hear the word of God and harden our hearts. Let's hear the word of God and let's be called to action. I love you so much, church. Let's pray.